Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Ed Kay, CEO of Stoke Therapeutics and former CEO of Sarepta Pharmaceuticals. Join us as we explore Dr. Kay's extensive and groundbreaking career in the biotech industry and how his passion and commitment to children living with rare diseases has influenced his decisions along the way. Good morning, Ed. Thanks so much for coming in. Well, good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk a lot about your experience um, and industry experience as a professional that works with rare diseases. Do you want to start by telling me a little bit about your background, where you went to um, med school, and how you chose uh, your path from there? Sure. I uh, started out in medical school at Loyola in Chicago, and then did my pediatric training in Chicago at Loyola, and then came uh, to Boston. Um, I was here in the late 70s, early 80s for my residency in child neurology. And then did uh, also decided to spend a couple of years uh, doing biochemical genetics. So I had always been interested in rare diseases, mm-hmm. even as a clinician. And I was here in Boston for uh, about 10 years. I was at Tufts and at the Mass General. And that's where my lab was. And then I moved to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and was working on gene therapy for uh, rare genetic diseases. Um, and then in uh, end of 2001, was recruited by Genzyme. And my focus at that time was we had brought the science to a point where um, we were ready to develop therapies for, for at that time, really focusing on children with rare diseases. Uh, but we didn't have the money. And I appreciated that we would never have enough money to actually take these into development. Um, so I, I had a unique opportunity uh, to, to work at Genzyme um, and had an opportunity to, to, to work with Henry Tremere. Um, and really focus on these genetic diseases that I had been studying for years. And the idea of coming up with a therapy, um, you know, uh, where there were no therapies was just too exciting of an opportunity to pass up. Well, right. And and here in Boston and Cambridge area, Genzyme has certainly been uh, maybe the, the father tree or the mother tree to um, many new companies and and uh, it's always everything seems to c- come back to Genzyme when I'm walking around and talking with people. So were you interested in pediatrics? Um, just to clarify, prior to Genzyme, you were, correct? Oh, yeah. So I had, um, I, so I had done really pediatric neurogenetic diseases. So it was, it was really very 
specialized both in Boston and and Philadelphia. And uh, what I realized very early in my training that it was a lot easier to deal with children than adults. <laughs> Well, yes, I suppose that's absolutely true. Um, was it difficult to switch from academia to decide to go into industry? I had a lot of uh, soul searching, and, and I think part of it was that I um, um, felt that I had so much information and knowledge that I had acquired over the years that I felt this obligation to pass it on. Um, you know, to other people, the next generation. Um, but I think it was it was a in um, really in 2003, and I had been leading the clinical development teams for Aldurozyme and for Fabrizyme. And within one week, it was on a, a Monday and a Wednesday, we had um, our advisory committee, and they both were approved. And, I'm, and I'm, I thought to myself, you know, in, in one day, I will help more patients than I could in my entire life. And so that made it feel that it was really worthwhile and that I had made the right decision. That is a remarkable, I mean, all of that work and have that su success happen right then must have been Extremely yes, it, rewarding. It, 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 it was, and then and then of course it, it continued to get harder and harder as we went along. You know, the diseases were tougher, and and uh, finding the endpoints for the disease and trying to to advance the therapy. But um, you know, I think um, the important lesson was that you really need to be determined to do it, and you have to be dedicated, and you can't allow failure to stop you. You have to continue to push on. So it's really more perseverance than it is, um, you know, intelligence, I think, in some ways. You, you know, you have to really have that commitment. And some of that commitment comes from meeting the patients, understanding their needs, and suddenly realizing that however bad your day is, it's nothing compared to what the patients have to do every single day. And if you keep that in perspective, then, then you say, well, I, I have to persevere. We have to do this. We have to come up with a therapy. You sound a lot like my own physician. I'm very lucky. Um, I also have a rare disease, as you know, and my physician uh, just simply does not take no for an answer. She has uh, worked tirelessly on this, you know, one particular clinical trial, but to find new treatments. And, and there's been a lot of disappointments, but you just keep going. You, you must keep going. And I don't think we would have advanced as far as we did without without some of that persistence. So I imagine that a lot of patients are as thankful to you as I am to her. Yeah, I think, you know, I think in, in our field, um, whether it's academia or in industry, probably 90% of the things we start to work on are going to fail. And yeah, you right. cannot allow that to deter you from, from going forward. Because every time you have a failure, you learn something more, and you use that information and try to continue to come up with a better therapy and something that's going to work even better than you thought it would. After Genzyme, where did you go? So um, I moved when Sanofi took over Genzyme. A lot of the entrepreneurial uh, feelings kind of left. It was uh, it was clear it was a bigger, it was a, a good company, but it was a, just a different atmosphere. And mm -hmm. I really wanted to um, kind of continue in the area. So I, I went to uh, Sarepta, and at that time it was, it was actually called AVI Biopharma, and I went there as a chief uh, medical officer. But it had an interesting um, approach of exon skipping, and their, uh, the main indication was Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I had worked with the 
patients from um, you know who were involved with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and it was just a a wonderful group of advocates um, that were smart, knowledgeable, easy to work with. And um, I really wanted to to work with this group of, of patients to see if we could come up with something. And um, you know, after um, after five years of working on this, we were able to come up with the first um, therapy, approved therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And and again, that was um, you know really you know for me was very meaningful because it was it was not easy. <laughs> um, but you know, and and so I started in two thousand and one, and I've had the pleasure of working on and leading teams, six different teams, and we've had six drugs approved since two thousand one, and all in rare diseases. And and I think I just uh, my wife says, when are you going to stop? And I go, <laughs> I just need one more. <laughs> no <If> way. One more. <laughs> So that the decision with Duchenne's is groundbreaking. I want to get back to that. But something you said really struck me. Um, you were talking about your your interest in partnering and working with the patients and the patient foundation. Um, but what was your position at Sarepta? So I was um, chief medical officer and then um, uh, took over in 2015 to be not only chief medical officer, uh, but uh, CEO, and part of that was um, out of necessity. The, the company was having some difficulties, and was and was it was a challenging time. And um, you know, I finally decided. The board um, had asked me, you know, what should we do? And I said, I finally decided, um, I'll just take over the company and and, and do it. <laughs> just and, let me do it. <laughs> just let me do it. Just get out of my way and let me uh, do it. I'll get it done. And and, and I appreciated that uh, that vote of confidence. But I think um, if I think back. At, uh, why I was able to make that decision, I think it really came uh, would come back to my experience with Henry Tremere, because very early, you know, Henry appreciated that I understood the science and the clinical development. Right. But he said, "You need to understand the business," and he really forced me to do things that I was uncomfortable with. And uh, I remember asking him one time, and uh, this was probably about two years after. I was at Genzyme, and I said, should I, should I go back and get my MBA? And he just looks at me, and he said, you already have your MBA. There is <laughs> nothing that the Harvard Business School could teach you that you don't already know. You've right. learned it the hard way. And I thought about that, and I said, you know, it's probably true. So I think that experience of, you know, working with investors and being outwardly face, uh, you know, facing. And I think what I also realized is that um, in order to have a successful company, you need to be able to tell the story to get other people interested, not only the physicians, but, you know, you have to get the investors interested and people right. have to believe what you're doing and then it's a good idea. And so you have this tension, you know, I think first and foremost, you want to make sure you come up with a good therapy that takes care of patients. But you also have to have a successful business. And if you can't be successful, you can't continue to supply patients with innovative therapies. So it's that balance that you have to do. But you can't be just focused, you know, on the investors. And I think, you know, you know what's worked for us is we've gotten the investors to understand how important it is to uh, to patients and that, you know, uh, we will be successful in making money and get a return on the investment. But the most important thing is coming up with innovative therapies. What strikes me about what you're saying um and it really, it's not to overly pat you on the back, but what really strikes me is you have the right balance of the medical, the business, the um, empathy, you know, 
and the passion and persistence to make it work, but really you included the patients, and that was the first thing you told me about was working with the patients versus working with the investors. And I think that the success is, is that keeping that story um, in line with uh, the medicine and the business at all times is really crucial. So I mean, congratulations yeah, on that. No, no, thank you. And, and, and I think one of the things that I've, I've tried to do is um, to make sure that everyone in the company understands the mission. And it doesn't matter what your position is. It doesn't matter if you're in manufacturing or in science or in administration. Um, you have to understand is that everybody's working uh, for the same purpose. And so one of the things um, that I certainly learned at Genzyme was to bring the patients in, have them tell their story to the entire company. And suddenly you have people who are, you know, maybe at very early entry-level positions in finance or in accounting, um, but somehow they feel part of the mission. And I think what's really important for people is not just your salary and your compensation and your title. I think they need, and especially um, millennials and, and having a younger son is is the penultimate millennial, uh, but, but, but they need a mission. They need to feel like they're doing something. And they're willing uh, to work hard. They're not worried about the title if they feel as if they're part of a team that is making a difference. And I think one of the, the really wonderful aspects about working in biotechnology, especially in the Boston area, is you can actually make a decent living and but really do something for humanity, make a difference. You and really can. And there's not that many jobs that you can do that. I mean, if you look at some of the really important jobs that you know that we all value, it's the teachers and 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 people who you know uh, who work for a living and and uh, nonprofits. But it's very hard for them to make a living. But this is one of the few businesses that you can actually do well for your family, and you're doing something really important for patients. Well, and you said it, and I've heard it many, many times before, the frustrations at the workplace are nothing compared to the struggles of these individuals with the rare disease on a day-to-day basis. So if you can always bring it back to the purpose, it makes it a lot uh, more enjoyable for everybody. Yeah, when we were um, having, we were, we were waiting to hear at, at Sarepta from whether or not we would have approval at the FDA, <clears throat> I remember um, talking with um, uh, having the company-wide meeting. And, and one of the things I, I remember telling them, I said, it is not just us. I know everybody's frustrated. Uh, everybody's thinking about, you know, should I stay on? Uh, but we have um, an obligation to these patients to get this drug approved. If we really believe it works, then our mission is to get this approved. And we uh, didn't lose one employee during all those difficult times. And they stayed through the entire process until we got approval. Uh, and that's a big that that's really big because you had two uh, failed attempts prior to the approval. Is that correct? That's right. We had well, we had one delay. We had uh, w- one notice that it was um, that we had to um, that it was not going to be approved, and then we had a delay in our advisory committee. So it was an uphill battle, and many people were getting wonderful offers because we had a great team uh, to go work for other companies um, because of, of their experience. But they stayed until the job was done. No one person. That's remarkable. How large was the trial? 
So the um, initial trial was only 12 patients, and the problem we had um, is that it was never intended to be a registration trial. It was just thought to be a um, was going to be a first a phase two study, and then we would do a much larger study to um, to verify that the drug is working. All of the rare disease community was watching that in particular because um, it, it was unique in that there was some concern or many, many concerns by the FDA that it was not um, reaching the endpoints that they wanted. Is that correct? Yes. And I think, um, you know, the problem with a lot of um, diseases, when you start the study, uh, you don't really understand um, the disease completely or how the drug is going to work. So I, I think what happens is it evolves. And I think the challenge that you always have is that, um, evolution of our knowledge uh, can really prolong uh, the development. So it goes from you know from a year to years, and patients right. are waiting. Right. And so I think it's always a compromise. How much do you need to have, especially in a rare disease when you when you're never going to have enough patients? So if we looked at um, the studies that we were doing uh, um, after the initial 12 patient study, we had 10 percent of the entire disease population in the United States enrolled in a study. Well, if you think about diabetes, you'd have to have three or four million people enrolled right. in a study. And so you, it, you need really, to, it puts it in perspective it that, yeah, it'd be nice to do a really big patient study, but there aren't that many patients. So there's always a compromise. And what's good enough is, is I think, an evolving process. And what do you think was, was part of the process in getting over that hump for the FDA and for the approval? Well, I think... Um, I think that probably the most impactful was the patient involvement. And the patients, and now uh, it's codified in law, the patients have the ability to uh, talk about their disease and discuss it with the FDA. So the idea that patient involvement is really part of the drug process is now, um, you know, since 2016, it's part of the law. And so we've seen have, a precedent. We've for seen it. a precedent. Yep. And so I think what's happened, what we what we notice, is that the patients were talking with the FDA and say, this is what we're seeing in the patients who are currently being treated. And it's not recorded in some of the clinical endpoints, but this is meaningful to us and to our uh, to our children. And so what they did is they started to collect their own evidence and they were presenting it to the FDA, different from the company, um, and, and had that um, kind of uh, dialogue, simultaneous dialogue with the FDA. And I think that was enough to tip the FDA over and say, okay, um, we think it's more likely than not that this is working. Therefore, uh, we will give an accelerated approval, but there has to be a commitment um, that you have full approval, um, you know, with harder endpoints in the future. So I think it, they... Uh, made the decision to allow the drug to be used earlier, um, with with the you know with, with the qualification that you have to do other trials to to prove that it works and prove the safety, which certainly at the time we we're willing to do. Well, and you and I both know the lifespan and and the quality of life for patients with Duchenne. Uh, it was incredibly frustrating for them to hear, is it safe? I mean, they really wanted, obviously, no one wants to give their some their child something that's not safe, but they really wanted uh, improved quality of life for them for what mattered at the moment. And so they were passionate and just like you did not give up because they had a lot of reasons to feel like yeah, no, I- it was not going to work out for them, but they kept fighting. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the 
challenges, I think, is um, uh, you have to appreciate that they're willing to accept certain side effects from a drug if it's a very serious condition. And right. I think that was the challenge for the FDA to understand, and, and this is true for all rare diseases, is that um, if you're having a significant benefit, uh, patients really understand the rest. They're not naive. Correct. Uh, and examples, um, you know, um, would be um, Tysabri was a drug that was um, used for multiple sclerosis. And at the time, there was about a one in a thousand chance of death from, um, from another illness. Patients, and, and there was a concern, it was pulled off the market, and patients came back. No, we understand that one in a thousand of us could die. But you don't understand how well this drug works, and we're willing to take the risk. Absolutely. And because of that, um, that drug got back on the market, and because the patients absolutely mandated it. And in fact, certainly at the time, it was without a doubt a precedent breaking in what it did for for uh, for multiple sclerosis. So, you know, I think the, the patients have to be involved in that decision. I think it's very patronizing to assume that you can tell them what risk they're willing to, uh, you know, to accept. And I think what's important is they need to understand the risk. You have to be completely, completely transparent Absolutely. and say, here's the risk. You need to make a decision for you and your family. Um, is it worth it? And what I found, especially for really serious disease, the patients understand the risk completely, and they will say, yes, we're willing to take it. If you have a milder form of the disease, they would say, perhaps not. Yep. And I'll wait. Right. And that's a personal decision, and that's fine. It really becomes a balance of quality versus quantity and the personal choice in the family and, and the mutation and other genetic factors. It's just not as easy as saying yes or no. It, it, and I think that's true for, for non-rare diseases, but it's really concentrated, right? We see it directly um, in rare disease. And I think one of the challenges is that if you look at some of the drugs um, in the past that have been developed for large indications, um, you know, for inflammatory diseases and things like that, you realize is that some of the side effects didn't show up until you had over 100,000 patients treated. Well, if you have a rare disease, you don't even have 100,000. No. You'll never get to that point. No, never. So there's always going to be some concern about a side effect that you just won't understand. And that, I think, um, what has evolved with the FDA, and I you know, give them a lot of credit. I think what's important is not how much information do you have by the time the drug is approved, but do you have a commitment to continue to study the drug, and especially for side effects, long after approval? And so if something shows up five years later, the patients understand what it is and can, and, and can know about it. Um, but I think in, in these rare diseases, you, you will never have enough information um, by the time the drug is ready to be approved. Well, and after approval, I mean, you may be able to go on to generation two or generation three of the drug and and improve, but without moving forward, it's it's we have to get to the first step to get to the second step, right? Sometimes, yeah, no, Lots, think, a lot of the time. I think that's I think that's an important um, understanding. I think when we um, when you have the first therapy, it's never as good as it could be, and you have to understand that. But it's a milestone. And it's really important for patients. And then the next generation or the third generation continues to get better and better. And I think a good example is um, uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children. 25 years ago, um, 95% of the children died. But this was no therapy. They were going to die. 
And the oncologist worked, you know, decade after decade after decade in, in having combination therapy. And every child who was treated was part of a protocol. And they, they learned year after yes. year after year. Each, each child had each, its own protocol? Had its own, had its own protocol that wow. you'd have to go into a protocol to get the therapy. And they all agreed to share information. And so now 25 years later, you're looking at a 95% survival. So wow. you completely reverse the disease. Fantastic. But it took 25 years. Yeah. And if someone had said that first um, you know, uh, therapeutic trial, they said, well, it's not good enough. Uh, you know, that, that means that it would never have learned. And I think that's important to remember. It is an evolution. And it's not something that happens overnight. It's a really long-term uh, commitment. And I think the, uh, another good example is gene therapy. If we look back... I was involved in gene therapy in the early 90s in the research lab. We had assumed that we'd have gene therapy within uh, five years. Right. Uh, and, and now we're suddenly having We really are closer. Or we, we, uh, oh, we're we there. Are. We're, we're there. there. We yeah. have approved products. Yep. But it took us 25 years to get there. Yeah. Not as quickly, but still pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. So in the beginning of this, you, you said your wife said, when are you going to retire? Uh, and you haven't retired after the, your big accomplishment with uh, the Duchenne community. So what are you up to since then? So um, um, it, it was funny. I, I thought I would have a little bit of downtime. And then um, I think within a period of eight weeks, I was offered um, to be a CEO of six different companies. And I finally <laughs> decided, I'm really tired of these people calling me. Maybe I'll just get a job. And then nobody's going to call me. And then I can say I'm already working. Thank you. <laughs> um, but for me, it was... Um, could we use something very um, interesting scientifically? And the company is Stoke Therapeutics. And, um, and I had worked with Adrian Craner. Um, and Adrian Craner was the inventor of Spinraza, which was a really novel treatment for spinal muscular atrophy that Ionis and Biogen had worked on. Um, but Adrian actually had worked with us at Genzyme because we initially had had the, um, the license for that. So I respected Adrian as a researcher and also a very decent human being. And he had approached me about this. He came up with another new idea to treat rare diseases. And so I listened to him it was last summer and uh, got excited about the idea of using this interesting platform to go after diseases that um, hadn't been able to be treated before. So it was just too interesting of an idea to have a brand new therapy that no one else had thought about and to use it for, um, especially in children, um, where there was no good therapy. So we're, right now we're looking at uh, genetic epilepsies, which are really tough diseases. And no one has gone after the genetic cause. Um, but we're rushing into the clinic and hope to be in the clinic uh, by early 2020 to be able to treat um, patients to upregulate the, the missing protein that they have. And it happens to be a, a sodium channel and it, it causes severe epilepsy and they have um, very severe other neurologic problems because of it. So we're hoping that we can reverse that process and, and use this platform um, for other conditions that really aren't amenable to gene therapy or CRISPR and some of the other newer technologies. So to me, it was just like, yeah, you know, this is too interesting and it, it has to be done. And what was uh, very enjoyable for me, it was able to get a great group of people, nice people, smart people, hardworking people, that all saw the opportunity. And so it's been a lot of fun working, you know, with smart people. We have very experienced people. We have 
very young people, smart scientists coming out of the universities in the Boston area that are helping us. And so it was fun to get a collection of really smart people, put them together and say, this is the problem, this is the disease, let's go after it. And it sounds like you were able to build your team a little bit then. We did. So we, um, you know, we're up to just under 30 people. I, I was employee number 12. And then we're going to be expanding um, next year. We're, we're going to be doubling the size of the team and, and quadrupling the size of the laboratory. So things are moving. And, and you're still working with kids? Or is it all yes. ages? It's it's all ages, but it's primarily children. Yeah. And and I think for me as a pediatrician, I just um, – I think it's heartbreaking to see a child suffer. You know, adults – it's also terrible, but it's even. It seems, at least for me, it seems worse if it's a child because they, you know, there's nothing that they can understand or prevent. It just happens. Well, it's our human nature, right, to protect our children. I mean, that's, that's right. That's just what we do. I'd much rather live with my disease than watch my children uh, live with the disease. And they, I, I just got incredibly lucky. They don't have it. Autosomal dominant, and I just won the lottery there. So it's much easier for me to fight it than watch them suffer. And that, and that would be true for any child. So do you miss pediatrics? Do you think you'll ever go – I mean, not pediatrics, but rather practicing as a, as a physician? So I've had um, an opportunity at the Children's Hospital here in Boston is when I went into industry, I was able to um, get privileges at uh, Boston Children's. So I still do an occasional consulting and I still give, give lectures and I've had uh, residents rotate um, through the company and for science. So I try to keep that connection. And I think what's been a um, very nice for me is I've been able to, you know, interact with a lot of my former colleagues that I knew when I was uh, practicing pediatric neurology because we're coming up. We uh, got to reconnect with the people in the neuromuscular field. Now we're reconnecting with the uh, people in pediatric epilepsies. So I, I still feel I'm connected. That's and, excellent. And, and, and that's, that I think it grounds me. And if I go to the hospital and I look at patients, it reminds me of what we're doing. Well, in continuing to interact with so many disciplines so that we can look at, you know, some of these multi-system diseases and, and or just the quality of life for a patient and all the different specialties they need to see. It's, it's just great to, to have such a large team around you, both in business and then in the hospital. It's fantastic. Yeah. And for me, I've, I've um, utilized you know, former colleagues at uh, Boston Children's and also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I worked. And I've kind of recruited them and, and asked them, will they be part of our studies and will they help us? And it's been, it's been very gratifying that, that everyone says yes and how can we help you? And, and they're really smart, dedicated physicians who um, are interested in making the lives of their patients better. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I'm not. I'm sure I'm not the very first person to, to uh, pull off this bad joke, but uh, I personally am stoked to watch Stoke. Yeah. So I, I, I had to go there. I, had to do I had it. To but so, I'm so I'll share um, a story of, of how that name came up. Um, and, and obviously what we do is we're upregulating proteins. So, yes, you are kind of like stoking a fire. <laughs> but the only reason why that name was chosen is our initial investor, which was Apple Tree Partners in New York, who were 
great people to work with and have been uh, really, really supportive of us. The the deal was is because their name was Apple Tree. You had to the name of your company had to be an apple varietal. So we literally went down the list really? <laughs> and figured out the only one that made sense was it's this Stoke Apple, which is a red varietal, which is in uh, I think it was in Germany, if I, if I remember correctly. So it was kind of serendipitous that, that how that name came that out. That is funny. Well, it works. It works. That's right. I mean, especially as we see so much innovation and the young the young generation moving into our space. So that's great. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, thank you so much for uh, persisting in being a trailblazer with the FDA. That's, I mean, it, it, not only did you help the Duchenne community, I think that decision um, gives a lot of hope to to thousands. I mean, it, we know rare is rare, but there's one in 10 have a rare disease. So a lot of people's lives were changed by your persistence, and we're grateful for that and for you coming in this morning. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I think one of the things that I did learn from that experience is that because of that success, so many other companies poured millions of dollars in R&D into shen muscular dystrophy. So um, that was, I think, the, the most important outcome that suddenly people said, okay, this is really important. We're going to invest. They did it. So we'll try to. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.